This is Marcus Stead, and hopefully by now you've had an opportunity to listen to the latest edition of Johnny Gould's Jewish State, where his guest is Lance Foreman, who is one of the Brexit Party candidates at today's European parliamentary elections. If you haven't had the chance to listen to it, you'll find it easily enough on the Talk Podcast website and on our iTunes feed. After listening to the programme, I sent Johnny some private thoughts in the form of an audio file where I looked into the issues that um, Lance Foreman raised, much of which I agreed with, though there were areas of disagreement. And Johnny said to me that he found it very thoughtful and very interesting and that I should publish it um, as an aside to the podcast. So here it goes. What you're about to hear are some thoughts I shared with Johnny Gould privately yesterday. And um, yes, this is what I thought of what Johnny and Lance discussed. Be interested to hear your feedback as well. Get in touch. Hello, Johnny. I hope you're well. Um, I've just listened to the podcast with uh, Lance Foreman, and I've put it up on the, um, the Talk Podcast website and also on our iTunes feed. Uh, I'm sure that'll uh, get plenty more listeners, bearing in mind I uploaded my own podcast, uh, my interview with Greg Lance Watkins just yesterday. There's a bit of crossover there, actually, because um, one of the things um, Greg talked about was the difference between the, the British and the European legal systems, and I thought you articulated it very well uh, insofar as the relationship of the state you know, in the, on the continent. It's very much a system of um, the state tells you what you can do, whereas in this country it's you can do what you like unless the law prohibits it. And Greg talked about that a lot in my podcast and, and you summarised it very well, I thought. Where I really disagreed with Lance was on the the way he made the decline of towns sound inevitable. Um, and I don't accept that as an, as an assumption and this is something I profoundly disagreed with him on. Um, you used the example of how Birmingham is doing well, but you travel just a few miles away to West Bromwich and it's a very different story. Um, I would make two observations on that. The first is that you go to many of the northern towns and cities. Now, I lived in Liverpool for three years uh, between 2002 and 2005 when I was at university there. And the city centre was pretty good even then. It's been redeveloped since, and it's now, you know, you've got the uh, Liverpool One shopping centre, the redevelopment of the Albert Dock, and so forth. But the centre of Liverpool was all right, pretty good when I was there. But go half a mile outside, and you'll see row upon row of boarded-up houses and largely abandoned streets. And there was an enormous housing stock in Liverpool. But there was an eeriness about it because so much of it was boarded up. Um, I noticed looking at Google Maps that some of it has now been demolished and some of it has been left as grassland even. But um, this is a pattern you see in many parts of northern England where there are uh, gleaming city centres and some glamorous arenas and shopping centres and so forth. But you don't have to travel too many miles away from there to see a very different picture of what life is like. But to bring things closer to home a little bit, where I am here in South Wales, situation with the Welsh Valleys, um, it's all very well somebody like Lance saying, oh, you know, the decline is inevitable and people can move and, and get jobs elsewhere. It's not as simple as that. Because, for example, if a school leaver or even somebody with a degree is from Mountain Ash or one of the old mining towns, Merthyr Tydfil, wherever, 
it's all very well saying, oh, move to London or the southeast, but who's going to keep an eye on your elderly relatives? And you get this sort of brain drain mentality. Well, you know, if you've got elderly relatives or someone in your family needs keeping an eye on or, you know, your sister's a single mother and and, and the, the child's father's nowhere to be seen and you help out, then, you know, moving... Uh, moving to the southeast of England is is not necessarily an easy option to take. However, I'm not a pessimist about these things. I think Brexit could potentially be a wonderful opportunity. Um let's take the example of Singapore where the growth I think the growth of Singapore in the second half of the 20th century is one of the great success stories of this world under the leadership of Lee Kuan Yew. And now his son is prime minister of Singapore. And what they did, one of the ways they ensured regeneration and job opportunities across the island of Singapore, draw a line on the map and say, if you create, say, if you set up a business there and create, say, 100 jobs, you don't pay any VAT or business rates for five years. Now, that would currently be illegal under EU law if we were to replicate that in this country. But post-Brexit, there's no reason why you couldn't. Um, so that th th this is the way we can get creative and innovative. And in theory, at least, physical location shouldn't be anything like as important as it used to be. The key is getting lightning-fast, reliable broadband to every town, city, village in the country. So... <laughs> With the right broadband infrastructure, there's no reason why most businesses couldn't relocate to the Welsh Valleys. And that would not only succeed in regenerating those places, it would take the heat off the housing market in London and parts of the southeast of England. Though not the whole of the southeast of England, because as you've rightly alluded to in the past, there are parts of the southeast that are really not that wealthy at all. And there are serious issues with poverty, particularly in the, in the seaside towns. Um, in the South Wales Valleys, the transport links are poor. I mean, you, you can look at a map and you can think, oh, Cardiff and Merthyr Tydfil aren't that far apart. Well, what you've got to remember, of course, is indeed they're not that far apart, but travelling from one to the other involves meandering either on a railway line or on an A road. And you've got to allow at least an hour to make that journey. Because you're not you're not travelling on along flat land, you're meandering through valleys. Um, so tra you know transport links are a factor, but I think the big one in this day and age is getting good lightning fast broadband links to every town and city in the country, and then incentivising businesses to relocate to um, Bargoid or Merthyr Tydfil or West Bromwich or Rochdale or you name it. Yeah, the only reason i think physical location may still be important is what's what i call the coal theory you leave a piece of coal on its own a lit piece of coal on its own and it will die out you surround it by other pieces of lit coal and you end up with a lovely coal fire and to, to use that analogy in a business context um you are perhaps more likely to succeed in business if there are opportunities to network and you have people living in your community who you can go to for advice and for collaboration and so forth. Um, that's possibly the only reason why physical location could still matter in this day and age. But uh, ask yourself this question. Okay, you moved to London in what, the early 1990s to, to set up sports media and to begin 
um, your national radio career. Well, your national radio career really started with talk radio, didn't it? But, you know, to work on LBC and so forth. If you were of the same age nowadays and the property market in London being what it is, it would either be entirely out of reach for you or you would have to accept living in a shoebox. And whilst you may be willing to live like that for a period, um, the, the ratio between money earned and the rent or, or the deposits you need to put down on a house in London are, are now crazily absurd. And as such, uh, it's only a certain demographic of young person who can afford to move to London now. Um, for, for people living in the Welsh Valleys or what have you, unless they're being paid very well and are willing to put up with shoebox-like conditions, um, it, it, unless they're getting that, th then it, they may conclude it's just more trouble than it's worth. So what we really need is to, is to use Brexit as an opportunity to take the pressure off the housing market and acknowledge that physical location is not the obstacle it once was and with fast broadband and incentives like I say employ a hundred people in this deprived town you pay no business rates or VAT for five years this is the sort of to use a cliche outside the box thinking we've got to use to make the most of Brexit and see it as an opportunity um, I, I take seriously what Lance said about anti-semitism and well it's it's horrendous some of the things that are going on in this country these days I gives me great cause for concern um, and as you and I have said in the past it, it does concern me that Jewish people a significant number of Jewish people don't feel comfortable in this country anymore I mean you and I messaged each other a while ago about the Jewish community in King Coyd here in Cardiff not being as big as it used to be um, yeah it's horrendous all this drawing of Nazi swastikas it's horrific loss for words really on the wider subject of anti-semitism you rightly talk a lot about the Labour Party and I agree with everything you've said on that and everything Lance has said but I'd also urge you not to take your eye off the ball so far as Plaid Cymru goes because you read the article I wrote in um, in February um, Wales a country divided I I talked a lot about Saunders Lewis and Saunders Lewis is revered in Welsh nationalist and crack circles, and he's still revered by Plaid Cymru, and yet they seem willing to overlook his anti-Semitism as some kind of minor character flaw. Um, it's like David Wigley, now Lord Wigley, um, former leader of Plaid Cymru, you know, saying, oh, Saunders Lewis was a national hero. Uh, uh, no, he wasn't. He had some horrendous views. Not only was he an anti-Semite, he was also a racist. You look up some of his views about ch wartime childhood evacuees to Wales. His attitude towards them was pretty awful as well, if you look it up. So Plaid Cymru have never really got to grips with their... I wouldn't even say anti-Semitic past, because if you continue to revere an anti-Semite, it suggests it's very much a current problem and not something of 60, 70 years ago. Um, so I, I'd urge you to, to say, maybe say something or write something about that or discuss this at some point. They, they, re, they get very touchy when you mention this implied Cymru, but for as long as they're revering Saunders Lewis and not acknowledging the fact that among their own ranks um, before and during World War II, 
they were dis- there was people at very high levels saying that um, oh we may be better off if the Nazis win World War II because it'll help the Welsh nationalist agenda. Now that's obviously messed up thinking. Um, but there were senior figures in Plaid Cymru who really did say that. Uh, I, I, I mean, Saunders Lewis is one. There are many others as well. Um, the other thing is, I, I, you know, here in Cardiff, Roald Dahl was christened in the Norwegian church. And you told me once you visited the Norwegian church in the early 1990s. I think it was when you were visiting here for the, uh, the Lennox Lewis Frank Bruno fight. Now, Roald Dahl, there was a big exhibition and a big um, a big carnival day where people dressed up as Roald Dahl characters in Cardiff a couple of years ago. I think it was would have been his 100th birthday or something like that. Roald Dahl was an anti-Semite. There were smatterings of anti-Semitism throughout his work and I think we as the people of Cardiff, um, well, I'm open about it, we... we I despise Roald Dahl and what he stands for and what he represented in Cardiff. But again, it's another one who we should not be revering. He was a horrible man with some very nasty opinions. I don't care how good a children's author he was. This is not a human being we should be revering and we mustn't overlook his anti-Semitism and describe it as some kind of uh, minor character flaw. Um, there we are. One final observation in, in this hostile environment we live in at the moment in relation to the Brexit party. Um, this business about throwing milkshake. Well, Pim Fortein, the Dutch politician who was assassinated in 2002, just a few weeks before he was murdered, he had cake thrown at him. So it's all very well, you know, Tom Bradby on ITV News at 10 made a little quip about milkshake when he, he introduced the story about what happened to Farage, but it's not something to be taken lightly because of where it leads. Mm-hmm.